Well, what we're dealing with is a war. One thing that we're dealing with is a very simplistic and sudden media sensation that unfortunately hasn't taken the message that this war is terrible and could end in nuclear escalation and destroy our planet in a minute. It hasn't taken that narrative. Instead, it's taken the narrative of those Ukrainian heroes with their homemade weapons are going to create a regime change in Russia. We are sitting in the back seat of a car called Global Politics, and our drivers, they are drunk, and we need to grab the wheel. Welcome to episode 101 of the Refuse Fascism podcast, a podcast brought to you by volunteers with Refuse Fascism. I'm Sam Goldman, one of those volunteers and host of the show. Refuse Fascism exposes, analyzes, and stands against the very real danger and threat of fascism coming to power in this country. In today's episode, we're sharing a conversation on Ukraine I recently had with Mark Elliott Stein, the tech director for World Beyond War. Then we'll take you outside St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City last Sunday, February 27th, where Rise Up for Abortion Rights held courageous testimony and defiant action for abortion rights calling you into the streets this Tuesday, March 8th, International Women's Day. But first, we need to give some shout outs. Cheers to the students at University of North Texas for unwelcoming anti-trans Texas House candidate Jeff Younger with truly beautiful protests. No homophobe, no KKK, no fascist USA! No homophobe, no KKK, no fascist USA! That's the sound of Riverview High School students who joined in on statewide Don't Say Gay walkout in Florida on March 3rd. That's students in Florida who walked out and lined the entrance to the Florida House floor, forcing lawmakers to pass them. Jack Patach organized the statewide Don't Say Gay walkout on March 3rd in response to attempts to silence and erase the LGBTQ plus community in Florida. He was indefinitely suspended from his school for organizing a peaceful rally. We should all take action to defend Jack and all the courageous students who took action and then join them in the streets, disrupting this march to fascism. This action cannot be a one-off, but should inspire people of all ages across the country. I make this point because on Twitter, there was a lot of like, the kid's going to be all right. But the truth is, they won't be unless we rise up with them and refuse fascism. Before we dive in, you may be wondering why the Refuse Fascism pod is talking about the Ukraine. And why are we talking about abortion? Again, through our interviews, we bring together, engage in dialogue with a range of perspectives about what that means, all of whom we believe adds something vital to our collective understanding. I want to make clear that includes both my guests and also my opinions. My every word should not be construed as the official statements of refusefascism.org or the product of group consensus. Please visit refusefascism.org for that kind of thing. 
We produce this podcast every week to lead people to confront the growing threat of American fascism. Personally, I'm an internationalist. I don't think that American lives are more important than other people's lives. And we've talked here about how the U.S. fascist movement plays a particular role in the global rise of fascism, featuring guests from around the world. There is a discourse that reduces the threat of fascism to little gangs of neo-Nazis and Proud Boys, and this fits nicely with Putin's claims that he is trying to denazify Ukraine, where a unit of their National Guard is openly neo-Nazi, neglecting the fact that such forces have just as much influence within Russia proper. But if you've listened to any of this show, hopefully you see that the threat of fascism goes away beyond costumes, street thugs, and historical roleplay, and right to the heart of power and empire. Fascism is a distinct form of rule. If it is consolidated here, it will be patriarchal, genocidal horror, the likes of which we have not seen. And at the same time, American fascism is rooted right here in the U.S., in its history, in the contradictions of this empire. The Russian invasion of Ukraine intersects with this on two axes. On the one hand, we have a fascist, Putin, who also plays a particular role in the rise of global fascism, waging a brutal war of choice against a smaller, less powerful country, Ukraine. And at the same time, even more fundamentally, the truth is that, as Raymond Lada put it, what we have here is not a, quote, battleground for democracy, but a conflict zone of imperialist rivalry, end quote. As dire as the situation is for everyday Ukrainians, and as much as Americans seemingly across the political landscape love to play armchair Rambo, this is not a movie with simple good guys and bad guys. This is a war that emerged out of, is driven by, and on present course will only be resolved on the terms of the rivalry between Russian imperialism and American imperialism and the contradictions within that, a rivalry that right now acutely threatens all of humanity. For a deeper background, I would recommend the article, quote, a hellish war in Ukraine, where the hell did this come from? End quote. Link to in the show notes. As to why we're talking about abortion again, as to why, as refused fascism, we're throwing in big in this fight for abortion rights, in the words of Sansara Taylor, key initiator of Rise Up for Abortion Rights, and a frequent guest on the show, quote, This is a Christian fascist, theocratic, woman-hating movement, and their assault on abortion is a battering ram in a broader, horrific fascist program that is infused with white supremacy, xenophobia, science denialism, and is gaining ground on many fronts. This movement cannot be accommodated. It cannot be appeased. It will not stop until they have imposed their nightmare vision of the world on all of us, or until they are decisively defeated. End quote. Let's be clear. If the Republic fascists are victorious in decimating abortion rights, it would accelerate their momentum with all the horror that entails. Now, here's Mark Elliott's time. Today, I am so excited to be talking with Mark Elliott Stein from World Beyond War. And so I want to welcome him onto the show. Thank you, Mark, for joining me. Thank you, Sam. It's great to be here, and I love your podcast. Thank you. Today, we're working to untangle the naughty problems that make up the war in Ukraine right now. On one level, I want to be clear. It's simple. A powerful country has invaded a smaller country and is attacking not only military targets, but residential areas in cities and killing civilians. It's wrong and frightening because that powerful country also has the world's largest stockpile of nuclear weapons and is threatening to use them. However, 
The solution to this crisis is not simple. And it's also not so simple or correct to just say Putin is evil and needs to be fought, especially from where we're sitting in the U.S. The U.S., by the way, is the one country that is not only has the second largest pile of nuclear weapons, but, and here's the kicker, has actually used them to kill people before. 200,000 civilians were slaughtered in Hiroshima and Nagasaki by the U.S. with only a couple of bombs at the end of World War II. Today's version of nuclear weapons could wipe out all of human civilization several times over with intercontinental ballistic missiles that require very little time to launch. I'm saying this up front because this is not a side issue, but it's the entire backdrop against which this terrible situation is unfolding. And so, Mark, can you tell us with a little bit more detail what we're dealing with right now? We're recording this conversation on March 1st. Well, what we're dealing with is a war. First of all, we've been watching this build up for several months, and we've been talking about it, writing about it, and tweeting about it. Everybody who is an expert in this field, from the hawks to the doves, from Russia to Ukraine to NATO. Everybody knows that this has been building up for several months. One thing that we're dealing with is a very simplistic and sudden media sensation that unfortunately hasn't taken the message that this war is terrible and could end in nuclear escalation and destroy our planet in a minute. It hasn't taken that narrative. Instead, it's taken the narrative of those Ukrainian heroes with their homemade weapons are going to beat Russia and create a regime change in Russia, which actually many of us think would be great because Putin is a fascist. We've been tracking the fascists from Putin to Trump to Bolsonaro to, you know, Duarte all over the world. We're dealing with fascism, but the idea that fighting back against Russia using military means with Ukraine in the middle is horrifying because that is the fate that Korea suffered from 1950 to 1953 to be in the middle in a proxy war. So for the past week, really, since this horrible thing has begun, there's really been a lot of pro-war sentiment that we're dealing with. So as an anti-war group, World Beyond War, we are both trying to put out the message that this, what just happened, is the worst thing that can happen. But also the way to end this is not more war, but peace negotiation. So what we support is a ceasefire. What we support, one word for it is diplomacy. Another word for it is peace building. It has many facets, but we need to get sane. We need to Stop fooling ourselves that Ukraine is going to have a military victory against Russia because that will harm Ukraine. And what we're worried about is, again, that Ukraine will be in the middle in a long proxy war between NATO and Russia and will suffer the fate that Korea suffered. And Korea is still split. So we haven't ended that war yet. Let's not start a new one with Ukraine being split in two. So let's talk a little bit about NATO I think that there's a lot of confusion on what it exists for, what it is. If you could share with our listeners a little bit more about NATO, what was it originally intended for and why does it still exist and what the impact of it being strengthened is. There's been recent changes with Sweden and I think Finland expressing willingness to join, Germany giving more funding and increasing their, their militarization. What was it intended for? Why does it still exist? And why is it not a good thing <laughs> for it to become more expanded or strengthened? NATO is a military entity, meaning it is a military treaty. It is a treaty that says that if any of the countries who are part of NATO are attacked, that will escalate to a war with all countries in NATO. Obviously an extreme position. The reason this got reached is in 1945, when Europe was split between the ruins left behind by the Western armies and the ruins left behind by the Russian armies, 
That split was literal, and we had the North Atlantic Treaty Organization representing the United States, England, France, and West Germany, and then we had the Warsaw Pact representing Russia, Poland, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Romania. At this point, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. But basically, we had two blocks, NATO and the Warsaw Pact. By 1991, in a peaceful revolution, the Soviet Union fell apart and the Iron Curtain fell and countries became free to pursue self-determination. At that point, the Warsaw Pact ceased to exist on the East. And what would have been the right thing to do is for NATO to cease to exist, because it is, again, a military thing, NATO. It is a military entity. NATO instead, I believe what happened, if I could imagine the conversations between George Bush of the United States, who was president at the time, and the various leaders, I'm guessing it was something along the lines of, well, NATO is our basic cohesion around everything from oil and fossil fuels to banking. It has become our entity. And we're certainly not going to just give this up, right? And then everybody around that table said, all right, we're not going to give it up. So our position at World Beyond War, and I believe the position of most peace organizations and most peace activists, is that NATO should have dissolved when the Warsaw Pact dissolved. You know, that was the end of the Cold War. These were the two organizations facing off in the Cold War. It didn't dissolve. It became really an opportunistic financial concern, really. And I think what's really at stake, of course, is oil and fossil fuels. Nord Stream 2 has been a gigantic part of this story, and Crimea has been a gigantic part of the story. Basically, NATO and Russia have been facing off on these two issues. In the south, Crimea. In the north, Nord Stream 2, which is an oil pipeline, a game-changing oil pipeline, which there is a, a strong contingent of the American foreign policy establishment wants to oppose, wants to stop this oil pipeline. What I consider the sincere Ukraine advocates in the United States, like, for instance, Alexander Vindman and Applebaum, I don't always agree with these people, and I do believe that they are soundly anti-Trump and anti-fascist in that sense, but they they are very committed to Ukraine recovering Crimea. And I believe that that cause, that Ukraine should recover Crimea, which Putin illegally took in 2014, that cause has been taken up in a cynical way by fossil fuel profiteers and war profiteers who are like, okay, that's what we can use as our wedge issue to keep NATO on the cutting edge of war. NATO did not want a de-escalation of general tensions between Russia and Western countries in Europe, and this was the wedge issue that was available. Part of this is me, Mark, projecting my theory. Part of this is generally recognized. So, you know, I don't want to mix my own sort of calculations with what other interpreters would say, but generally... NATO is being used opportunistically for profit. What's really at stake here is fossil fuels and weapons profiteering and military profiteering. And I think that's why this has gone so badly. That's why the NATO side and the Putin side have escalated to the point that we had a new war, a new terrible war. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Like how NATO has made this situation worse? Sure. Do you know what I mean? You know, that it's not just 
It's not just that Putin suddenly pounced. Right. Yeah. Well, that's why when I began this, the first thing I wanted to emphasize is that while many in USA only heard of this war two weeks ago, or some of them maybe heard of it a month ago, we've been tracking this since 2021 when this military buildup started. And of course, we're horrified by Putin's military buildup. We are against any military buildup. So what has happened really is a series of leaks from the Pentagon from the State Department and from various sources. And this is how journalism happens in the United States. And sometimes this is great. You know, in 1973, we took down a corrupt president with leaks. Leaks are important, okay? But leaks can also be used cynically. And my understanding of what has happened in the past several months that caused this to be like a very steady build up to war over several months, the main thing that has happened is that the Ukraine advocates and I'm certainly not accusing Alexander Lindman of being a leaker. I would never accuse a person of being a leaker. I have no idea how this happens. But I do believe that Ukraine advocates in general were turning the heat up with predictions about, for instance, a few weeks ago, there was a prediction, which I thought was very irresponsible, that Putin could kill 50,000 in Kiev. And this, in the way it was reported on cable news, which I watch, I watch the worst of it. I get cable news because I want to see the worst of it. And cable news is trash. And I'm talking MSNBC, CNN, and Fox News. The way this got reported on cable news is that Russia just killed 50,000 in Kiev like two months ago. They basically treated it as if it happened when what it was was an intelligence estimate buried deep within the Pentagon's research centers that got handed to a journalist. And the journalists were then able to have a hot story. Wow, Putin's just about to kill 50,000 in Kiev. What happens then? Calls for Biden to sanction Putin for killing 50,000 in Kiev. You know, to be clear, I'm talking about several weeks ago before the invasion. So then the sanction would actually come. And so there was a series of sanctions, many of them from the United States, several of them from European countries. These sanctions were in response to these leaks of intelligence estimates about the damage Putin might do. Now, meanwhile, Putin is not necessarily taking the easy way out of this. Putin seems to be a psychopath who enjoys escalation himself. It's certainly all a game to a fascist, and you've got to act like it's all a game, and you've certainly got to play the poker game with all your chips up front. So every time in the last several months that a leak about a possible Russian attack was followed with an actual sanction as if the attack had happened, that would then trigger an action on Putin's part to increase troops. You know, at one point, by the way, there was an announcement, a press release that Putin was pulling back. I wish I had the dates. I wish I had the calendar in front of me. I'm going to guess this was a week, week and a half maybe before the invasion that Putin's forces were pulling back. Well, cable news did not like that story. They did not like that story one bit. So basically that story got treated very cynically. What our news media wanted was escalation. And I'm so disgusted by what I saw. I would say it's the worst I've ever seen. By the way, I love, for instance, Nicole Wallace. I trust her show. Doesn't mean I trust every guest on her show, but I'm not trying to put a blanket condemnation on entire channels, but I'm shocked and disgusted by the craven standards of reporting intelligence estimates as if they were atrocities. While meanwhile, you want atrocities? Look at Yemen. Look at Yemen. You want atrocities. There are real atrocities. Instead, they're reporting hypothetical intelligence estimates of what Putin can do with horror show headlines. So that's, to me, the story of how step by step we climb the staircase to war. Does that click with what you observed, Sam? Yeah, I mean, I think so. And I think that there's also layers to it, a layer of 
dispelling or yelling at anyone who questions the audacity of U.S. journalists calling out the crimes of a war on a sovereign nation when they played a huge role in making sure that war happened on a sovereign nation with Iraq. So anyone who brings that up, it's like, that's not what we're talking about here. Don't let us talk about the truth. It's like hard to wrap your brain around the stubbornness with which people are fed and coached into this savior mindset that they're going to rally against this government as a force for good in the world that's going to go and save the Ukrainian people. It's a fantasy. It's a fantasy divorced from all evidence, including things that people have lived experience from. The Iraq war is not a distant memory. You are so right. This people thought, well, we'll do sanctions. We need sanctions. You hear people that are good people caring about people's suffering. And yet, what do they think we need to do? They think that crushing sanctions that this government proudly says will cause suffering and sacrifice on the Russian people, that that's a good thing, that that's something that will be helpful. Well, I love the way you put that. And I would say that there is one little part of that that I understand. There is so much rage at Trump and Trumpism, and I felt that rage. I was very much part of the anti-Trump movement, as I know you were, and refused fascism was an absolutely key part of that movement, and still is. There are many who have a need for catharsis after the horrors of Trumpism, and this is providing catharsis. Unfortunately, it's providing a really poisonous and wrong catharsis. And, you know, all of this Zelensky crushing, this crushing on Zelensky. Now, I love Zelensky, actually. I think Zelensky is great. I wish he could be president of this country. I mean, I wish we didn't have him, but I wish he could be president of this country. He's certainly better than anyone we've had in recent memory, but we don't need all of the militarism that comes along with this crushing. I did want to ask this question very directly that right now people are watching all this, you know, the 24-hour coverage and they're justifiably desperate to help the people in Ukraine. What should people who have a heart for humanity right now be doing? I will tell you in four words. Pray for a ceasefire. We do not want Ukraine to get into any Red Dawn fantasies generated in America that they will actually beat Putin's nuclear military in an actual war. So pray for a ceasefire. I want to mention something that people very rarely think about. Until Trump, the United States of America was known for peacemaking. And I know we were also known for war making, but Teddy Roosevelt, a horrible racist and colonizer, also legitimately was a peacemaker in the Russo-Japanese War. Legitimately. Jimmy Carter, personally, I consider Jimmy Carter an admirable person, same way I consider Zelensky an admirable person. I liked Jimmy Carter. That doesn't mean I, you know, liked what the United States did during the four years he was president, but he was an epic peacemaker. And the United States earned a lot of goodwill for its peacemaking. Donald Trump threw over a 100 years of our good reputation for peacemaking into the garbage when he trashed the Iran deal. Basically, we attacked Iran the same way that Russia just attacked Ukraine. We literally took out their active military leadership. We canceled a peace treaty. I don't see how that's different from a declaration of war to cancel a peace treaty. To answer your question, what we can do, I mean, of course, what you can do things on a personal front to people who, who have any channels of direct communication with Ukraine. By the way, on my podcast, um, the World Beyond War podcast, we spoke to a, a young woman who was in Kiev on the morning 
that all of this went down and, and it was really a moving experience. So of course, all of that is important. But in terms of what we can urge, what we can hope for, what we can call our political leaders and ask them to do is United States needs to, first of all, apologize to Iran for starting a war with Iran under Donald Trump, restore the JCPOA, the Iran Treaty, and recover our reputation for peacemaking. Now, that's not going to happen overnight. We can't even get our head out of our ass to get JCPOA restored which is incredible since Biden was vice president when this great Iran peace treaty was, was made. I see all of these issues as linked. We can't be a hypocrite to Iran and claim to be a peacemaker in Ukraine. So we need to recover our reputation. I think Andrea Chalupa, who is a big Ukraine advocate, I don't always quote what she says about Ukraine, but she said what the United States needs to do about Ukraine is end its own corruption. She actually is very in support of U.S. intervention sanctions. Well, so. You know, by the way, I love it, Sam, that when I mention either Anne Applebaum or Andrea Chalupa, you're, I can't control you're, for a second, you're so fast, your reaction. And I know you're, you're on top of this stuff. I know you're paying attention to every word like I am. Okay. Gaslit Nation is the podcast run by Andrea Chalupa and Sarah Kenzier. Just like I love your podcast, I love their podcast. And I do think Andrea Chalupa... Her Ukraine advocacy is being used. What do you think, Sam? What do you think? I mean, I think that what she's doing is dangerous because she has disproportionate influence. She has a legion of very dedicated followers. And I think that a lot of what she is putting out will, whether it's her complete intention or not, is for the destruction of Russia, whatever it takes. Yes. You know, she is at her heart an anti-Russia, anti-fascist who wants to go to war with Russia and has. And in her thinking, she views Russia as the number one criminal in the world behind everything that went wrong in the U.S., and internationally. And there's been incredible work that she's done, incredible research that she's done, incredible productions that she's done. I don't think that fascism is external to the US. I don't think that Trump is Putin's puppet. Those are things that we diverge in. I think fascism is completely American and that we didn't need some evil outsider. But I do think that it makes things easier for a lot of people. Yes. Because then we don't have to confront the problem here. Not to ramble, but that's just what I think about that. And I think it, it's a situation because Putin is a fascist. Right. And that doesn't mean that this government should have anything to do with changing who's in power. This is being used as a regime change model when it's like, okay, let's look at what's going on in this country. Can I yeah. respond to this on a different level? Yes. I'm thinking about how different organizations and different sort of activist circles work together. I love Gaslit Nation. In fact, I support them. I love Refuse Fascism, and I especially love your podcast. I love World Beyond War, where I am employed and I'm on staff. Each of these circles has differences, and yet the Venn diagrams of where we all agree are where I choose to live. And because I'm a peace activist, and this is a connection I like to make, and I love it that I get a chance to say it here, because I'm a peace activist, I try to make peace. If I don't understand how she thinks she's helping Ukraine by escalating a war with Ukraine in the middle, a proxy war, I think that's wrong, wrong, wrong. I think it's scary, scary, scary. I don't understand that, that but I forgive her. And I'm going to still listen to Gaslit Nation. That's where I'm at, peacemaker. I totally hear you. I mean, I think I have two questions left. One thing that I think is confusing right now is what the fascists in this country are saying and doing regarding this Ukraine situation. 
when you say the fascists in this country, do you mean the Trumpers? The G- exactly. Okay. They know. I think that they are scrambling. I think that they were caught unawares and half of them are going one way, half of them are going another way, and many of them are going multiple ways. Um, but I do think that they will ride Joe Biden on this issue. And I think this is opportunistically good for the Republican Party and the Trumpers because Joe Biden does not want to commit to this war. I give him credit for that. He has never been on the cutting edge of committing to this. He's been pushed to commit at every step. The Republican Party will be calling for more commitment. They will be saying Biden is not tough enough. Why? Because this is their step. This is all their joke books. They're pulling out their Obama isn't tough enough joke books and going to reuse all of it. And by the way, I personally believe that the origin of Trump as president was Obama facing off against Putin and the conservatives all saying, we need somebody tough like Putin in America. This was, I believe, around 2012. And I just remember there was a real craze around this idea that Obama was weak against Putin. And there were a lot of pictures going around of Putin looking nasty and Obama looking weak. And right around this time, Trump announced for president. So, you know, I see Putin as part of the origin story of Trumpism. Absolutely. And that has nothing to do with money. I don't think Putin had any part of it. This happened in American media. In other words, Putin didn't do this. American media did that. I think that they will push the Biden is weak line, just like they pushed the Obama is weak line. It was very damaging to Obama, and they plan to use this to win in 2024 to the extent that we'll have an election. And I don't think we will, because I think our society is falling apart. But that's another story. Is it, quote unquote, appeasement of the modern day Hitler? to not go to war with Russia or arm Ukraine now. I would say that statement would not be true. No, what is appeasement is what the Democratic Party in the United States is doing to Trumpism right now. Before we talk about Ukraine and Russia, I just want to say that I believe Merrick Garland, the attorney general, is literally an appeaser. It is incomprehensible why the January 6th coup is not being treated as an actual threat. I actually believe that the Democratic Party, the Joe Biden administration, and Merrick Garland are running scared from January 6th. It looks to me like they are running scared. And so that is appeasement. Appeasement is running scared. Many say that before World War II, the Prime Minister of England, Neville Chamberlain, was running scared when he appeased Hitler. Well, that's only one of many metaphors. The metaphor I see for what's happening in Ukraine and Russia is the beginning of World War I. There's a book called The Guns of August. I recommend it because it's very readable. It's a popular, best-selling history book written for general readers many decades ago by a woman named Barbara Tuckman. And it details what happened when Europe fell into the hell of World War One. It makes clear as this did not have to happen. It was absolute incompetence on the part of Germany, Russia, Austria, that is Austria-Hungary, France, England, and Serbia. Absolute incompetence. And some people may foolishly believe that World War I had to happen for some reason. No, World War I was hell on earth. Another point that surprises people about World War I, they think that Franz Ferdinand was assassinated and then World War I happened. No, Franz Ferdinand was assassinated and then Serbia and Austria began a series of escalations. Then Russia joined. Then Germany joined, then France joined, then England joined. A couple of years later, America's joined. It's called escalation. It's incompetence. None of them were helped. All of them slaughtered a generation of young men. And, you know, through this, we got, you know, the poetry of T.S. Eliot and the 
paintings of Pablo Picasso from this lost generation, but I don't want to have another lost generation. I believe that our leaders are incompetent. They are drunk drivers. We are sitting in the back seat of a car called Global Politics, and our drivers, Joe Biden, Vladimir Putin, all the rest of these clowns, they are drunk, and we need to grab the wheel. I think that that is a great place to end. I want to add that I am so very proud, and my heart is with the people both in Ukraine and Russia, where people are fearlessly protesting and showing heroism in the demand that they're not be war and, and nonviolently fighting back in many ways in the Ukraine, and that there is nothing good that would come from the U.S. being involved except more horror. The U.S. has never been needed anywhere to solve any war through war. Doesn't work. And if folks want to disagree with me, definitely hit me up, but don't be talking any World War II stuff because that was the Soviet Union. U.S. came in when it was done. I just want to thank Mark again for chatting with me. In the show notes, you'll find a link to World Beyond War and the podcast and all that good stuff. So thanks again, Mark. Thank you too, Sam. Great talking to you. That was Mark Elliott Stein. A link to his Twitter and the World Beyond War podcast is in the show notes. Now I have to say I exaggerated a bit. The United States did play a role in ending the Holocaust. What I was getting at was the U.S. as a savior narrative is totally wrong and harmful, and in my opinion, has to go. Now you'll hear a powerful abortion rights speak out. I joined last Sunday in New York City. Overturn Roe versus Wade. To overturn Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade overturned. Abortion rights are under attack with the Supreme Court poised to gut or overturn entirely abortion rights nationwide that were established in the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision. A ruling is expected by late spring, and a new movement, RiseUpForAbortionRights.org, is determined to bring forward resistance massive enough to defeat this assault on abortion rights. On March 8th, International Women's Day, they will protest and march in New York City, Los Angeles, and nationwide. As part of building momentum for this, they staged a speak-out and nonviolent civil disobedience at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City on February 27th. You may be charged with additional crime to the prisoner transport. The Supreme Court has made it clear that they are going to obliterate women's fundamental right to control their bodies and their lives. If you don't stand up now, you are facilitating female enslavement. March 8th, International Women's Day, all across this country, fill the streets with our fury, abortion on demand and without apology. Here are some highlights of that day. So together, Let's make this International Women's Day 2020 the day that the fascists and the women haters began to get nervous, began to realize that those they have stepped on, those they have discounted, those they have disrespected, those they have treated as zeros, rose up and started to change the tide. So we're here in front of St. Patrick's Cathedral, and we're out here with Rise Up for Abortion Rights. And we're here because we refuse to let the U.S. Supreme Court deny women's humanity and decimate their rights. 33 years ago, I stood here with the New York Pro-Choice Coalition and raised this hanger, this same hanger. And this is a symbol of only one 
of the things that women used when they didn't have access to legal and safe abortions, you see? And so many women, so many women died. Well, I'm here today to get your attention. I want to get the attention of every woman and girl and every person of conscience in this country because women's rights are in a far more critical state of emergency now, a far more critical state of emergency. I started one of the first abortion clinics, legal abortion clinics, in New York in 1971. I am also, I stand here as a woman who had an abortion when I was 32 years old because I did not want to be a mother at that time. I could have been, I was married, I had all of the supports, but I chose, I chose, I chose not to be a mother. We must take the responsibility out of the closet. Own your lives, own your moral choices. Your body is your country and your dreams are your own. Protect and defend them. If not you, if not me, then who? Who? And if not now, when? Roe did more than establish women's right to abortion. It solidified and expanded the constitutional right to privacy. Included in that is right to contraception, procreation, marriage, family, family relations, child rearing, and intimacy, meaning sex. In 1962, I lived in a building in a six-floor walk-up, and I still live in a six-floor walk-up, a different one, on West 10th Street. And on the third floor was this very exotic woman. She was a cabaret performer. She had jet black hair, and I used to go hear her at the Blue Angel on 8th Street. One morning, she called me at 6.30, and she said, Jim, would you come down here right now? I went down. She still had an apartment with a bathtub in the kitchen. You have to be old enough like me to understand those days. I looked at her, and it was full of red water. She said, you must go to the, the drugstore and get me maximum strength Kotex. Now, you have to understand what that meant to this young gay man. I was embarrassed. I had, those were women's things over there. But I did it. And I came back. And she was dead. Dead! Because she had had a botched abortion over in what was the meat market at that time. As a black woman and a single mother of two, Abortion without apology enabled me to send two girls to college. We need to be able to make our own choices. We are not incubators. I'm going to repeat, we are not incubators. I had an, Ill an illegal abortion in 1969. When I returned home a week later, I was reading the morning paper, and there was my abortionist on page three, charged with murder. He perforated a woman's uterus while, helping, uterus while helping her. 
That could have been me. That could have been me. Growing up in the Catholic Church, I was taught to think that abortion was a bad thing. And I was trained to think that women just had to, they had to be mothers. And my best friend came to me when I was 16 years old in an abusive relationship and said to me, help me get an abortion. And I said no. And I didn't even think about what it was like for her to be living in a situation where she had to go back to an abusive partner and give birth to yet another child that she did not want. When I changed my ways of thinking and understood what an abortion actually is and understood that without this basic right, women are reduced to nothing more than breeders of children. And their life and what they're going through just gets completely erased out of the situation. Uh, we have a very special guest. She's flown here from San Antonio to testify about being denied an abortion after a br brutal gang rape when she was a teenager. I went to the, to the, the office with the nurse. I challenged, what happened to me? The, 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 that guys from the school raped me. I need help because I can't have a child. They say, no. The, the babies have protection. You don't have rights. So I don't say my parents. I go to the street. I go with my baby. I was in the street. When I, when I saw my kids grow up and watching me and telling me, Mom, who is my dad? You know, I told, and that's stupid laws, and that's a stupid men's who made the law. So how I said, my son, you are from different men. I don't know who is your daddy because I was raped. You know, and now, now I, I want to cry hard, hard, hard. Because I am very angry. Because the law don't protect really the women. I am, I have rights. I decide in my body. I decide if I, if I have that child. I decide if I am in conditions to have that kid. We have heard a lot of stories today. We have heard the truth of what it means when the state, driven by Christian fascist hatred of women, forces women to have children against their will or drives them to desperate measures to avoid it. This is the truth. Forced motherhood is female enslavement. But we have also heard courage. And in just a few minutes, sisters and brothers, we are going to demonstrate our courage. We are going to see bravery because we have come to understand that it is time to put it on the line because this fascist program of control over women relies on us cowering in the silence that they heap on us. And today, at this moment when Roe v. Wade, the right to abortion nationwide, hangs in the balance, we have to say the truth here. This silence is being aided and abetted by the so-called leaders of the so-called women's movement who are telling you 
that you can do nothing but roll over and accept the obliteration of Roe v. Wade. Whatever they call this, however they dress it up, this is capitulation. And the fact that this so-called women's movement and the people of this country did not flood the streets in fury, did not shut down every freeway, did not walk out of every school, did not bring this society to a halt when the state took away the right to abortion to six million women of childbearing age in Texas last September. This is shameful. This is shameful. And this stops now. This stops today. Because when we rise, when we dare, when we back it up with our bodies on the line and the God's honest truth, that we are right. Right is on our side and they are wrong and the shame belongs on them. When we put it on the line, we can summon a force and call for a force that is a match for these fascist women haters that is a match for these dark ages shame throwers, that is a match for these pompous patriarchal politicians who have no right to tell a woman what to do with her body and her life. This fury, this unbridled, unrestrained fury of millions and millions of women rising up and rebelling against thousands and thousands of years of tradition's chains. This fury is a force that can shake the whole society and it can change the whole world. And that is what we aim to do. Yes, this is going to take a fight. And yes, it is going to take sacrifice. And yes, at times, it's going to be scary. But I say, look at the women of Colombia. They won the decriminalization of abortion in a Catholic country, in a patriarchal, repressive state. They won it what tipped the tide is when they looked at the women of Argentina who are raising this green bandana and filling the streets with their fury relentlessly, courageously, in the face of sacrifice, and they won the right to abortion. In the streets, March 8th, we will puncture the silence, we will wake up millions more, and then we will go to work together to do the hard but necessary and inspiring work to spark and spread and organize tens of thousands more and ultimately millions in a movement massive enough, righteous enough, defiant and relentless enough that we sweep across this country and make clear to the fascists on the Supreme Court and women haters everywhere that if they try to take this right away, their society will be prevented from functioning it at all. We are going to demand the Supreme Court not decimate women's rights and deny their humanity. We are going to fight and win abortion on demand and without apology. With that, Into the Streets, this Tuesday, March 8th, International Women's Day, abortion stays legal. In New York City, it's 3 p.m. at Union Square. 
protests are happening nationwide. Register and find a protest near you at riseupforabortionrights.org. The four is the number. Follow the movement on Twitter at riseupforabortion, again, the number four. And follow Sansara Taylor, the key initiator of this movement, at Sansara Taylor. Thanks for listening to Refuse Fascism. I want to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, ideas for topics or guests, or lend us go. Tweet me at Sam B. Goldman, or drop me a line at Samantha Goldman at refusefascism.org. You can record a voice message by going to anchor.fm forward slash refuse dash fascism and clicking the button there. Want to support the show? It's simple. Show us some love by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And of course, follow, subscribe, so you never miss an episode. Chip in to support our pod and content creation to help people understand and act to stop the fascist threat. You can donate by visiting refusefascism.org and hitting the donate button there. Venmo, refuse-fascism, or cash app, refuse-fascism. Thanks to Richie Marini, Lena Thorne, and Mark Tinkleman for helping produce this episode. Thanks to incredible volunteers, we have transcripts available for each episode, so be sure to visit refusefascism.org and sign up to get them in your inbox each week. We'll be back next Sunday. Until then, in the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America. 